It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. What is Israel doing with the corpses, often long dead corpses, that it is digging up out of the grave in Palestine, in Gaza in particular, Burke and Hare? or Netanyahu and Ben Gavir to give them their modern day. What are these grave robbers up to? And of course, we are learning day by day that more and more of the Israeli corpses from the October 7th attack were killed not by Hamas, but by the Israeli army themselves. In just one house, it was revealed today, an Israeli tank shell killed 13 out of the 15 Israeli hostages inside. And the mother of the latest captive found dead inside Gaza in a tunnel was killed by Israel with poison gas. South Africa has written its name in the stars again, and we'll be talking to one of South Africa's brightest stars right after my monologue. Stay tuned. This is the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. I'm dedicating tonight's show to the unknown princess of Gaza. She's a toddler in her princess dress who was filmed stumbling through the rubble looking for something to eat. I don't know this girl's name, but I have a little girl just like her. And when I see this girl sad and hungry in the rubble, in the ruins, in her princess dress, now reduced almost to rags, It's enough to break my heart. And for me, she has become an emblem of the children who have so far survived the murderous bombardment of Gaza over more than 100 days. I don't know her name. If anyone does, I'd very much like to know it. But I will not abandon her to her fate, will you? If you are one of those who will not, then you will be right behind the gallant bid by the government of South Africa to press a charge of genocide against those responsible for all that rubble, all that misery, all that death and destruction. It is the case that South Africa has twice written its name in the stars. First, when it defeated the apartheid system in their country, a system of colonial white supremacy, which came and stole the land from the people, deprived the people of basic necessities of life, divided them from each other, 
put them into Bantu stands, glorified concentration camps. The people of South Africa uh, took up arms against that sea of troubles. We'll be talking later to one of the commanders of that armed struggle, my friend Ronnie Casserles. In the decades since the victory of the liberation forces, there have been disappointments, to be sure. But in the last week, South Africa has written its name in the stars all over again. It became the only country in the entire world with the courage and the integrity to bring a case before the International Court of Justice that what Israel was bent upon and executing, executing being the operative word in Gaza, was a crime no less than genocide itself. On the face of it, it is truly remarkable that nobody else did it. It is truly remarkable that no Arab country did it, that no Muslim country did it. It's less remarkable that no Western democracy did it because they are all to a greater or lesser extent culpable and complicit in the acts of genocide themselves. The able South African legal team adduced a very great deal of evidence, which I commend to everyone, whether law student or merely a supporter of justice. The case that South Africa made was buttressed by the statements made by all the high personages of the state of Israel itself, from the president and the prime minister and the defense minister and ministers by the dozen and members of the Knesset and leading military officials in the Israel Defense Force, and then showed the results of the soldiers on the ground in Gaza, of the airmen in the air over Gaza, of the sailors off the coast in Gaza, as they carried out the orders for genocide that had clearly been given by the high officials of the state. In fact, they made videos of themselves doing it. They made videos for TikTok and elsewhere of themselves doing it. And so when you stitch together the genocidal statements of the leaders of the State of Israel and the genocidal actions of their armed forces on the ground, you have what's called in the law an open and shut case. It was an unanswerable case that South Africa made, ably pressed by their exceptional team of lawyers. The necessary conclusion that any reasonable person would reach after that case was pressed was that the judges there assembled would order a cease and desist order to halt the genocide which may well have been ignored by Netanyahu and his gang. Indeed, they said as much that they will not be stopped whatever the decision of the International Court of Justice was. But in truth, the real impact of such a judgment 
will be not on Netanyahu direct, but on the governments, Western governments, that are supporting them in every conceivable way. Because many of those are constitutionally precluded from doing business as usual with a country found, at least in the interim, guilty of genocide. And if those ministers in those Western countries decided to continue to supply and assist in every conceivable way an act of genocide as decided by the ICJ, they themselves would be open to prosecution by their own citizens within their own jurisdiction, within their own legal systems. Some of them would welcome it as an off-ramp, no doubt. The worst offenders, as always, the US and the UK, would be in particular difficulty. The former, because there's a presidential election going on in the United States, and Joe Biden is hemorrhaging voters in his Democratic Party voting base like no other candidate ever in any election year. His approval ratings are in the low 30s, and whole constituencies, young people, Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, overwhelmingly Democratic Party voters are abandoning Joe Biden's re-election bid with great gusto. Many of them are in fact now campaigning against the re-election of Joe Biden. And it would be a problem for Britain also because, well, frankly, there is no government in the entire Western world that is more hated by its population than the government of Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak became, last week, the ninth British Prime Minister to drop bombs and missiles on the people of Yemen. In fact, the first bombing of Yemen by Britain was the very year of the foundation of the Royal Air Force. Nine Prime Ministers. And all of my life, Britain has been killing Yemenis. One of my first and most vivid memories as an anti-imperialist was the sight and sounds of Scottish soldiers of the British army murdering Yemenis in the crater district of the port of Aden, then occupied by Britain. What's the crime of the people of Yemen? Well, like South Africa, Yemen is unique. Yemen became the only country in the whole world to actually do something to try and bring about an end to a genocide which is massacring tens of thousands of Palestinians trapped in a cage, inmates of a concentration camp being murdered by their guards. Yemen became the only country in the world to try to do something about it. What did it do about it? It said that no ship belonging to Israel or any ship going to or from any Israeli port will pass through 
our waters in the Red Sea. It's a kind of economic sanction that they took. They didn't kill anybody. Not a single person was killed in the interdiction of such shipping by the armed forces of the people of Yemen. But the very threat to containers full of goods passing through the Red Sea on Israeli ships was sufficient to muster up the new armada, an armada which is a US-UK armada. There are other countries like the Seychelles, like Bahrain, a car park for the US and UK navies in the peninsula, and mighty Netherlands has sent its navy to the area also. Germany has sent a warship to the Red Sea. What could possibly go wrong? But the killing last week was done by the same old killers. But they forgot something. They forgot that there are no people in the world like the Yemenis who have little, who are the poorest Arab country, one of the poorest countries in the world. But they have been fighting against colonialism for a century or more. First British colonialism, then the colonialism of British and American satrapies in the Arabian Gulf. They have been receiving British and American bombs long before last week, although the planes, we assume, that were attacking them were from their neighbors on the orders of the US and UK empires. Armed to the teeth, for nearly a decade, Yemen has fought against its neighbors acting as proxies. They defeated their neighbors' efforts to regime change them, to bring a puppet government from hotel suites in Riyadh to put into Sana'a, the capital of Arabia, Felix, the early name for the Republic of Yemen. They triumphed. They won. They forced those neighbors to stop bombing them, to stop attacking them. How did they do that? Because the Yemenis have developed a military capability capable of wreaking havoc in the oil industries of those neighboring countries. And they showed it over and over again. As a matter of fact, Ansar Allah, the army of the people of Yemen, is an extraordinarily adept military force. And they have already shown in the last few days, including today, that they have the potential to sink any ship in the Red Sea, which means ultimately that no ship will sail in the Red Sea, except the aforementioned Armada, whose sailors may well visit Davy Jones's locker in the deep of the Red Sea, and for what? To protect 
the genocide being wrecked by the state of Israel on the people of Palestine. Is that a price? I say to the mothers and fathers of British and American sailors, is that a price for a cause that you are willing to allow your sons and daughters to die for? I would say that if Rishi Sunak had put his plan to the British rubber stamp parliament, of course, it would have achieved a majority. But if he had put this new war on which Britain is embarked to a vote of the people of Britain, that it would have fared far less well. And as for genocide Joe Butcher Biden, he didn't even put his decision to start a new war against another Arab and Muslim country before the US Congress, which he is legally obliged to do. And therefore, the American forces operating in the Red Sea are doing so illegally under American law. Arguably, Rishi Sunak also is acting illegally under British law, but both of them, without a shadow of a doubt, are acting illegally under international law. No one has the right to attack another sovereign country without the permission, the explicit authority of the Security Council of the United Nations. And this new war wasn't even placed before the Security Council, let alone endorsed by them. So what we have in the Red Sea right now is an act of piracy, an act of brigandage, not by the Yemenis, but by the British and American forces who seem never to tire of killing Arabs and Muslims. But this time, they have picked on Arabs and Muslims, not just capable of hitting them back, but itching for the opportunity to hit them back. More fool us and our poor sailors may any day or hour now pay the ultimate price for this folly. So between Yemen and South Africa, we have the only two actors in the world at a state level actually trying to halt the mass murder of 30,000 Palestinians, 70% of them women and children, like the little girl, the unknown princess in Gaza. A massacre, a slaughter of the innocent from a state which thinks nothing of killing its own people as part of the Hannibal Directive directed by the criminal Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu himself. It's going to be a bumpy night here on the mother of all talk shows, so I urge you to fasten your seatbelts. Stay tuned. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Our first guest this evening is a longtime friend of mine, a former minister in the post-apartheid governments, a minister uh, with several portfolios, a man who is now a politician, an author, a peacemaker, but once upon a time, and crucially, was a military commander of the armed struggle of the African National Congress, which won the freedom of the people of his country. I'm proud to know him and proud to say he's on the mother of all talk shows uh, tonight. Uh, Ronnie, uh, welcome back uh, to the show. Uh, You must be very proud uh, of your country. There have been many things to be proud of as a South African, but this is up there with the liberation itself, isn't it? Absolutely, George. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, We are so proud of our country, of our government. It's gone through a rough time. I've been very critical of it at times, as you well know, George. But, my God, in terms of the stand that we've taken and the applause we're receiving, although the stand hasn't been for that, And I certainly don't mind if the great Yemeni people win your award instead of the South African legal team. But um, we're really so proud of this country. We've regained something of the um, excitement and the intensity with which we were viewed by progressive people throughout the world when we managed to overthrow the apartheid beast, which, of course, the Palestinian people will do so one day in relation to their land. We're absolutely sure of that. But it's been too long since I've seen you. And, you know, if I can say this to your audience, because I don't think many people know, but you're an honorary member of our underground in South Africa because you were one of those internationalists, the London recruit, we called them the ones who came from or were recruited from the UK, who came out to South Africa and assisted us in that time. And it's a little example of international solidarity. So it's not simply the question of the stand that the government's taken in terms of challenging Israel and charging it with genocide. 
but it's a question of doing it, yes, for the Palestinian people, people of Gaza and the West Bank, the Palestinians everywhere in the refugee camps within Israel itself and so on in the diaspora, but it is a mighty stand for humanity, a mighty stand for humanity. And I'm very pleased you asked me to interact with you at this particular time. I was uh, a very small time soldier. You were my commander, uh, along with uh, people like Joe Slovo, Ruth First, Dennis Goldberg, Albi Sachs, and of course the perspicacious amongst the audience uh, will have noted that everyone I've just mentioned there were Jewish, Jewish opponents of apartheid. That's one of the great piquancies, isn't it? As I once said at the Oxford Union, Jews don't have to be with apartheid. The African National Congress was filled with and led by Jewish enemies of apartheid. It's, it's uh, something special, that, isn't it? Well, for sure, it was a very small minority, though, of the Jewish community in South Africa, uh, dominated by Zionism, an enemy of ours from the time I joined as a 20-year-old, needing information, needing understanding, needing political consciousness, coming from a Jewish background. And um, what I learned very soon, George, from the veterans, black and white Christians in origin, as well as Jews, um, who were there, was that Israel was a tool of US imperialism, and that being Jewish was not synonymous with having to support Zionist Israel or being a Zionist. Um, and what we also need to point out is in that period of apartheid, the Zionist Federation and the Jewish Board of Deputies in South Africa castigated the few Jews, because we were a few, um, a, a good grouping around the country, and we were traitors. Uh, they would have nothing to do with us, and they projected us in that light to their community, to their offspring, that we were dangerous, we were no good. And I can tell you, although there was a brief honeymoon, which none of us enjoyed when we came out of the underground or from exile, and certain Jewish leaders, including a chief rabbi who had come out from Britain, from your Scotland, a dreadfully conservative person, actually, who was buttering up to Madiba, to Mandela, and for a very brief moment, they wanted to bask in our sun. And the moment they saw that we were condemning Israel, we were again absolute traitors. And the viciousness today has grown as it has in Israel in terms of this absolute inevitability of any doctrine based on race, on racism. It's inclined 
as Afrikaner nationalism was, as is happening in Israel, to go more and more to the extremes. And what we're seeing, of course, today is a fascism in Israel. And what we're seeing among Zionists around the world is that kind of poison. Although they don't wear jackboots and use the Nazi salute, but in terms of their racism and the measures they take and their lack of humanity, and they cry about 136 or nine who are people who are kept by the resistance within Gaza or a, 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 a 1,100 or so who they claim in terms of numbers were butchered by the resistance on the 7th of October, although half of the people were mown down and killed by the berserk Israeli death force. And the Zionists in this country swallow every single word and they pollute their offspring. And we've seen this happening in Nazi Germany, in fascism everywhere, and of course in Israel, where a good friend of both of ours, Gideon Levy, I was watching one of his interviews the other night, was basically saying, left or right in Israel, and of course left in quotes, are exactly the same when it comes down to the issue of the survival and the doings of this Zionist apartheid colonial settler state. So it's been absolutely awful in terms of what's happened to Jewish people because in that time that no matter the minority we were that I referred to, you could find in certain numbers that humanity. And for a while, and certainly in Israel, it's gone out the window and it has in South Africa. Mm. But I was pointing out in a debate last night that we've so welcomed the small grouping of young Jewish people in our country, incomparable to what we'll see in the UK and certainly in the US. But we've got those righteous Jews here and they've emerged and they stand up and they proclaim not in their name. And it's been so stimulating, inspiring to humanity and to, of course, the people of Gaza and Palestine at the numbers of Jews who are involved in the protests, the occupation uh, of, of so many vital points in, a, in America, Grand Central Station, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't want to dwell on that because it's not just Jewish. I mean, I'm born Jewish. They say that I've converted to Islam because I've married a woman who's not actually an intense believer. This is after the death of my wife, who you've paid so much tribute to in your life, George Eleanor, who was a Scots-born, a one-year-old who came to South Africa, Protestant background. She was a freedom fighter. And we've got to recognise that it's not simply the few Jewish people 
of course it's important to proclaim it because if I can just go on a little, George, when a small group of whites, Jews, Christians, communists, socialists in South Africa, a very small number, a couple of hundred or so, we were regarded by the apartheid regime with such venom. And the reason is because we called out the myth of racism, the myth that the whites all had to stand together for survival and had nothing to do with the rest of the country, with black South Africa, in the same way we see this in terms of Israel and how they tried to dragoon all the Jews in the world behind their flag. And it's very important that we're able to show the myth of that. But what's much more important, George, is the numbers of people of humanity, global south, global north, humanity everywhere, as you never fail to point out how we are humanity. Um, We are the many, they are the few, those wonderful words of English literature from one of our famous poets who we both love, Shelley, Red Shelley. And that applies everywhere. And this is why Israel has lost whatever is happening on the day-to-day butchery of people of Palestine. They are winning. They are winning for the obvious reason that humanity is with them, that they're fighting a just war, a righteous war, and they will win and the international solidarity of a young George who is prepared to come out to South Africa and carry out a mission. The example of that resonates in the millions and millions who stand by the people of Palestine and oppressed people everywhere. So it's a wonderful time we see with all the beastly tragedy in terms of the butchery and what the price the Palestinians are paying, but they're winning. They'll win this war, George, as you and so many others so eloquently put it. Amen. Uh, uh, We've only time for one more question, though I could talk with you all night. Uh, The multi-colored, multi-ethnic, multi-religious rainbow legal team have entered the consciousness and the hearts of people all over the world. I I declare an interest uh, as someone whose mother is Irish uh, in the beautiful summing up uh, of the Irish lawyer, but we had black South African lawyers, white South African lawyers, Muslim South African lawyers. It was South Africa at its very best the South Africa we fought for, Ronnie. It was the South Africa we dreamed of that we saw at The Hague, wasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, George, with the domination and its passing, and I'm not saying therefore that we're winning the world battle tomorrow and next month and next year, but the waning power of imperialism, of the former colonial powers, the collective West that's buckling 
what we're able to show in in that unity and in that outstanding young Irish jurist um, who's stolen all our hearts. And all of them are so outstanding, including our own South African John Dugard, who I knew back in the 50s, and we were very close in relation to the Congress of Democrats, which was a small white group that Joe Slover, Ruth Thirst, and others had actually uh, established. Um, so it's it's a whole range there, and it's multinational. It represents humanity, and they did an outstanding job. I, I want to just, if we've got a moment to add, how mm. this is embracing humanity, because look at the stand that small Namibia, a nation of two million, who suffered from the genocidal onslaught of Germany at, in 1904, exactly 120 years ago to the month, and how they've come out to condemn the stand of Germany in supporting Israel in terms of the genocide that Israel is guilty about. So this is something that is exploding everywhere and it's going to increase. And I must say, your introduction in relation to the brave Yemenis, almost the Cubans, as, by the way, resistance from Hezbollah to Hamas, and I'll say that, no matter how people might regard it, because the jury's still out in terms of what actually happened on the 7th of October, and the fact of the way, as I mentioned earlier, the Israeli death force is responsible for at least half of those people who were killed. And who knows what kind of evidence they were creating at the murder scenes in terms of building up the hysteria which they needed to go on the onslaught in terms of biblical tradition, as we've heard, from that butcher of theirs, Netanyahu, in quoting the Amalekites. And that's a nail in their coffin in terms of the genocide case. But can I just quickly say on the outcome, whatever the outcome, George, we've won, we've won in the court yeah. of public opinion. That's been won. You can never be sure what happens, as you well know, what happens in the minds of judges and the technicalities they can bring out in terms of standing against what is an obvious, obvious evidence. So from that point of view, I have certain concerns. We all hoping and at least hoping that interim approach in terms of the risk of genocide, because it's an interim action, that that can bring about the results we're all looking for. Because the issue, as the Yemenis are showing, and people like you for decades have shown that the Palestine issue is at the moral center of what's happening in the world. And Nelson Mandela made that very statement, George, you'll know all about that. I think you've just won the vote for South Africa, uh, with all respect to our Yemeni friends. 
Ronnie Castro's, I love you with all my heart. May God preserve you, and may we still be talking to each other a decade from now. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you, George. Thanks the for having me. Of all talk shows. It brought a tear to my eye. Who should win the 2024 Nobel Peace Prize? Yemen or the South African legal team? Talk about a difficult judgment to make. Comments are flooding in on Ronnie's interview. Freddie Dempsey says, Ronnie is our commander. He's always been my commander, literally as well as metaphorically. Wendy Sheets says, proud of this man, regardless of how he identifies. And Cyborg Ninja calls Ronnie a beautiful soul. Uh, William Cordasco says, also there was the Vela incident where it was a suspected nuclear test in the Indian Ocean detonated by South Africa and Israel. I was actually going to make the uh, point of Israel helping apartheid South Africa to develop a nuclear bomb, but we unfortunately ran out of time. Rabia Burak says, all the respect for South Africa, but I voted for Yemen because Yemenis are sacrificing their lives on the ground. Thanks, Rabia. And Rachel Thompson says, Gigi can't get the peace prize. He doesn't lie for the establishment. Indeed, let's take a quick break. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Lara Elborno uh, is a Palestinian-American international lawyer and co-host of the Palestine Pod, as well as being a formidable activist. And we're very glad to have her on the mother of all talk shows. Lara, welcome uh, to the show. I was talking to uh, Ronnie Casserils, a South African veteran, uh, earlier, uh, and he was saying how proud everyone in South Africa, well, nearly everyone, was of their uh, legal team and the case that they made. How did it feel to you as a Palestinian watching South Africa making that case? Wow. Well, first of all, I mean, as a Palestinian, I think the the single most important thing is that I felt seen. I think all Palestinians on the day that South Africa presented their oral argument felt seen. Um, merely 10 seconds into the oral argument, they already began with an acknowledgement of the Nakba, which was extremely powerful because as Palestinians for the last 75 years, part of the oppression that we experience is the continued denial of the Nakba, the denial of what happened to us, what happened to our grandparents, and what continues to happen to us today. So for them to begin with that, as a way to contextualize this, this ongoing genocide as the a continuation of the Nakba and what happens when you have over 75 years of impunity for human rights violations, that was incredibly powerful. Um, and so honestly, I couldn't be more proud, I couldn't be more touched, um, and I extend my deepest, deepest gratitude to anybody watching here from South Africa, to all the members of the team who pled and to anyone who stands in solidarity with us worldwide. Amen. And of course, there are more of those now than ever before. Uh, it's a pity so many tens of thousands of people 
have had to leave their blood on the ground to achieve this level of international solidarity. Uh, as a, a lawyer yourself, what impact do you think the case was making on the distinguished, one hopes, distinguished judges on the bench? Well, if we look at South Africa's case, we can see that they put forward a very convincing case rooted in facts and law. That part is undeniable. Um, in particular, I myself found the portion on genocidal intent extremely convincing because the South African advocate showed very clearly how not only have statements of genocidal intent been made consistently at the highest levels of government for the last three months, but also that those genocidal instructions trickled down to the soldiers on the ground who filmed themselves expressing the same type of sentiment while they blew up entire neighborhoods. Now that is just damning evidence. Um, so generally, I think really there's no doubt that the South African team proved all the elements uh, of genocide according to the convention. Um, now, on the other hand, the performance of the Israeli advocates was objectively weak. Um, the arguments that they raised on the law, so for example, repeated references to October 7th, we know that there's no legal defense to carrying out genocide. So from a legal perspective, the reason why a state commits a genocide or what they believe they are reacting to can never be a legal defense to genocide. Um, they also repeatedly invoked the notion of self-defense, which I don't think will find favor um, with the courts, um, once again, because you can't commit a genocide in self-defense. And in any event, we also know that the International Court of Justice has already decided in 2004 that Israel does not have a right of self-defense in accordance with Article 51 of the UN Charter with respect to attacks emanating from the occupied Palestinian territory. So really the only way they could have saved themselves is to show that there was no genocidal intent. Because again, the acts themselves are undeniable. But with respect to that, um, the most they could muster was to say that those hundreds of statements of genocidal intent that, that were part of South Africa's analysis are quote unquote, random quotes. Now, I don't find that very convincing and I, and I certainly don't expect that the judges will, um, but that's just the weakness of their case on the law. And on the facts, it was, it was a completely different story. I mean, a mess of epic proportions because quite simply, um, they are um, presenting a case that's just simply divorced from reality. I mean, you have at one point the Israeli advocate saying that Israel does not bomb hospitals when I can actually think of a dozen instances where Israel bombed hospitals off the top of my head. Um, they also said they don't target civilians. But, you know, there are words and there are facts, George. And they never once addressed the usage of hundreds of 2,000 pound unguided bombs on Gaza. And this was even confirmed by the US. And so therefore, how can you make an argument that you're not targeting civilians? They never addressed it once. Um, so this really isn't very serious. Well, uh, uh, we have a saying, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. And so it was asking their counsel quite a bit to make uh, a defense. And they, they sank to the occasion, even getting their pages uh, mixed up in their a presentation. So, I mean, if this were, you know, a tennis match, uh, then then quite clearly the South Africans won uh, very convincingly indeed. But of course, it isn't uh, a tennis match. Uh, and the possibility exists, albeit 
It's hard to imagine how and how it would be justified, but the possibility exists that the judges will find for Israel and against South Africa, perhaps on some kind of technicality. The one that is being cited is that South Africa had not actually entered a legal dispute with Israel before bringing their case. Can you help us uh, with an explanation of that? Yes, there, the, it's simply the idea that a dispute from a legal perspective must have arisen before Israel could be brought before the court. Um, and, you know, in, from my perspective, that's also not a deeply serious argument because in South Africa's brief, they pointed to numerous instances where South Africa put Israel on alert that it was considering its actions in Gaza as a case of unfolding genocide and giving Israel an opportunity to respond and to change its behavior. And yet Israel did nothing. It persisted. It continued every day in indiscriminate, uninterrupted bombardment, a starvation and dehydration campaign, um, and preventing Gazans from accessing the most basic supplies like even anesthesia. And, and so um, from my perspective, that's not a serious argument, but we will see how the court will rule. I mean, I'm not um, naive to think that, you know, the implementation or the interpretation of international law, rather, is not divorced from a political context. Um, but I would hope that given the simply damning evidence, the mountains and mountains of, of evidence, the thousands of photos, the thousands of videos that we have by now, the hundreds of statements of genocidal intent, that the court will do the right thing in this instance, um, and that they will find that there is a plausible case. Because let's remember, at the level of provisional measures, the only thing the South African team has to show is that there's at least a plausible case being made of Israel violating the Genocide Convention, and that's a much lower bar than what they will have to show at the merit stage, um, which is that, in fact, Israel has um, uh, carried out violations of the Genocide Convention in a much higher bar. And so, therefore, I, I would find it, I would be very, you know, we'll see what happens, but but I would find it difficult to believe that this case will be dismissed on a technicality of that nature. I agree with that. Uh, let's uh, pursue then for argument's sake uh, that uh, interim relief is granted by the court, that a preliminary finding uh, is that there's a case to answer, which is effectively what it would be. And that whilst that case was examined further, uh, there must be a cessation. Cease and desist uh, is the formulation uh, I use, maybe the court uses. Uh, the, uh, Netanyahu has already said that the court will not stop him, that Israel will not stop whatever the court decides. Now, everything that we know about the Netanyahu cabinet uh, would lead us to conclude he's telling the truth about that. But it would be a much more serious problem, wouldn't it, for the allies of Israel, particularly those that still pretend they are democracies, uh, that they are uh, rules-based, that they are uh, uh, law-abiding countries. For them, it would be, and you add in the presidential election this year in the United States, it would be very difficult for them to 
continue business as usual with the State of Israel in the event of such a preliminary or provisional finding, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, I'll get to that in just a second. But I do just want to add that, you know, this is very on brand for Israel in general. This is not just a question of the Netanyahu government. We're talking about 75 years of impunity. And it also wouldn't be the first time that Israel has blatantly ignored an opinion coming out of the International Court of Justice. Remember that in 2004, the ICJ rendered an advisory opinion on the legality of the wall um, that Israel built on Palestinian land in the occupied West Bank declaring that wall was illegal because it served to steal Palestinian land. The court ordered Israel to dismantle the wall. That was 20 years ago. And of course, Israel never dismantled the wall. And so this is just typical with the entire history of Israel in general. Um, But I also agree with you that um, the situation is going to be very difficult, exceedingly difficult for Israel's allies, its financiers, and providers of weapons, that of course being the US and the UK. And I think it's it's one thing for Israel to openly act in contradiction with an ICJ ruling, but is that really something that the US is prepared to do by continuing to provide Israel with more weapons unconditionally amid such a ruling? Um, you know, if so, the US will also be agreeing to further isolate itself from the world, especially after it already sabotaged two attempts uh, at a ceasefire at the, before the UN Security Council. So is that a path that the US wants to continue on? The US will have to answer that question, but I think that the the ultimate consequence will only be further isolation for the United States and for Israel, further cementing its status as a pariah state. Well, Lara, if I'm ever in trouble in America, I hope you'll be my lawyer. Uh, Tell the audience uh, where they can find the Palestine pod, how they can uh, follow your work. Oh, thank you, George. So the Palestine pod is my weekly podcast. Uh, I host with my co-host, Michael Scherzer, Jewish American uh, uh, comedian. Uh, You can find it anywhere where you find podcasts, Spotify, Apple. We're also on YouTube. And you can support my work at Substack, uh, substack substack.gazengirl.com. Gazengirl, great moniker. Thanks very much for joining us, Lara. And the best of luck to you. We're all hoping, praying, keeping our fingers crossed that this result goes uh, the right way. After a short break, it's the one and only Nico House not to be missed. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Nico House, one of our favorite American commentators, founder of the MCSC Network, and always worth seeing and hearing, joins us now. Nico uh, welcome. It's been quite a week in the uh, uh, in the United States, um, despite MSNBC's reluctance to acknowledge it. Uh, indeed, they banned, they censored the result of the Iowa caucus, which was won by historic margin by he who they refuse even to name, namely. Donald Trump, what was your takeaway from Iowa? I think that Iowa in general was more of a rebuke of the establishment rather than uh, just strict support for Donald Trump. 
I think that there were a lot of people who may have liked Vivek. Uh, obviously, there are a lot that like DeSantis as well. But when you win 98 out of 99 counties, and we know that the, the, the establishment right now is using the justice system, weaponizing the justice system against Trump as we speak, and yet it didn't matter, is what we learned. Those people, and this isn't like they're voting and uh, you're at a machine, you're in a booth, so no one knows who you vote for, so there are no social consequences in your community. They're looking at each other face-to-face, eye-to-eye, and they're saying, yeah, we'll go with Trump. And the reaction to that by MSNBC and CNN was honestly, it was immature, but it was also dangerous because of that lie that Rachel Maddow said. Oh, they're in the business of only airing the truth. Uh, and and not airing lies, and they don't want to give an unfiltered uh, microphone to Trump anymore. And we, th- this is the queen of Russiagate saying this, right? That's insane. And they absolutely had no problem airing Nikki Haley's speech, the same Nikki Haley who claims that literally everything and every uh, everyone bad in the world is directly connected to Iran for some reason. Um, lies time and like day in day out and. Yet they have no problem airing her speech. They have no problem airing Biden's speeches. Politicians lie. We know that. It's up to us to discern whether or not we choose to acknowledge them and whether or not uh, what we take away is truth, fact, or fiction. That's not their job. Their job is to report. Now, uh, the later went on, not just MSNBC, but many of the networks to claim that Nikki Haley came a miserable third because she's a brown lady. Uh, Missing the point that in Carolina... Uh, people voted her in twice as a brown lady. And leaving aside the fact she now claims to be a white lady. She even changed her name from her brown name uh, to the name that she now uh, carries. Uh, So it's back to the basket of deplorables uh, line, isn't it? That if you vote against the person we want you to vote for, it can only be because you're one of the basket of deplorables. Yeah, and let's be honest, 90% of the people who see Nikki Haley for the first time probably think she's white, and that's likely because she's gone out of her way. She's gone through extensive lengths to look as white, presenting as humanly possible. But yeah, she is Indian, but most people wouldn't know. Uh, and once again, she literally changed her name to Nikki Haley instead of Nimarada, which, which is her birth name. Uh, and so I don't think that has anything to do with anything. Um, and that, and I, I believe that you can see the passion that people supported Vivek Ramaswamy. Like, they didn't care if he was Indian. People don't like Nikki Haley because she's an idiot. I mean, just what, yesterday she went on a, a tirade about how we got to protect the borders because if we don't support Ukraine and give money to Israel, 9-11 will happen again. This is the same Nikki Haley. They don't like her because she's an idiot and she's a walking satire. She's literally putting satirists out of business because they can't compete with her. If if she just talks, it's too funny to compete with because it's like, that's reality. And reality is funny to satire at this point. And yet she's spending $3 million a week. So someone's got right behind her campaign. Who could that be? Who's I Look, APAC, I mean, good God. Half the time we don't know if she's running for president of the United States or president of Israel. So I'm sure APEC has a lot to do with that. Uh, I know that there are a lot of Democrats, like the Lincoln Project, 
uh, wing of the Democrats have been supporting her, saying that uh, she's the only one who has a chance to beat Biden if they did want to beat him, which is like, that's not a good sign. It's like, at least Biden has an excuse. He's old and demented. We don't know why Nikki Haley's an idiot. Seems like she was just born that way. Like she just woke up like that, like Beyonce. Um, I don't know who's supporting her. I don't even know how she got to that caucus. But when you hear people clap for some of the stupid stuff she says, George, it makes you worried about the country because you think that we're waking up and then you find out that there were more than three people at a Nikki rally and you're like, damn, I thought we were almost there, but seems like we keep regressing. Well, it's not just your country if it's any consolation. Uh, speaking of Biden, he's back in his basement. I mean, he made a dimly lit, scarcely intelligible uh, um, broadcast today, uh, making the point that he's the only person in the country that can beat Donald Trump. Did you see it? No, I didn't. But I mean, he's made that argument over and over again. And to be honest, you know, Putin has something to say about that. He, he was like, we don't really trust the results of the 2020 election because, well, that mail-in ballot situation that was brought on by the pandemic uh, brings the results into question. Let's just say it like that. I don't want to get you in trouble on YouTube. And to be frank, as a person uh, along with a team of people who studied how mail-in ballots and provisional ballots are used to rig elections, that, that isn't just an issue at the federal level. That's oftentimes used to rig elections at the state and local levels. We saw it happen with Tim Canova. It happened uh, to uh, Tiffany Caban in New York. She literally won a race and then the results flipped once the mail-in ballots were counted. Like that happens often. So we, I guess he has a chance to win the election because we don't really have an audit for our elections, do we, George? We don't know who won and who lost. So if he means he has the ability to win technically, now, that's totally different than actually beating him, because as we've seen uh, as of late, like I've been saying, Donald Trump, if all things are even, he gonna, if they could throw him in prison, he's going to run the country from a prison cell, because you can be a felon in the U.S. and still be the president of the United States of America. And at the end of the day, the Democrats have to realize he is that popular. And instead of pretending like everyone who likes him is a right winger or an extremist, maybe you should try to understand why people like him so much. Um, and, I, you know, you can make the same argument for why Bernie was popular or Tulsi was popular in her day. Um, like, maybe try to understand why they are turning to him. And like I said, if anything, it's just a rebuke of the establishment. They're tired of dealing with it. The mail-in ballots issue, again, is not just an American issue, I assure you. Uh, I have myself been the victim of miraculous productions of, uh, of uh, unexpected mail in the middle of the night. It's always in the middle of the night, always. And sometimes the lights go out just, just before <laughs> the magic happens. Um, now, uh, on the subject of Trump, who he picks as his running mate is going to be significant and important. Now, DeSantis came second. Uh, because Democrats can vote, in the Republican primary in uh, New Hampshire coming up. Uh, Haley, who is the pick of the Democrats, uh, but not the Republicans, uh, may very well do quite well in New Hampshire. Uh, it would be my nightmare, I must tell you, if, uh, if uh, getting on for 80-year-old Donald Trump picked Nikki Haley 
as his running mate. Uh, what do you think? Is, what are the runes telling you about what Trump's thinking about his running mate telling you? I don't think that Nikki Haley is coming anywhere near Donald Trump as a running mate. Um, I don't really see him associating with the the, the Republicans in the same way that he did uh, in 2016. And what I mean by that is he had some trust in the party at one point, although they went back and forth during the debates. Um, and obviously he heard a lot of insults and, and things of that nature. Um, it was kind of a sport for him. But it's different this time. Uh, we can make an argument that the, the failures of his administration directly came from the Republicans that he trusted to help run his administration uh, that he thought were allies, but instead were firmly planted within the establishment. Nikki, we don't know how she even got the ambassador job, let alone why anybody thinks she's qualified to be president. She's not shown any competence, competence in any era, era of politics at all. Um, Vivek, is a potential. That's who a lot of Trump's people want to see as the VP. But I don't uh, believe that Trump trusts him, nor does he have any qualifications either. Um, and like the vote that Vivek would help get, Trump already has solidly in his pocket. I'm going to be completely honest with you. He doesn't need to worry about Democrats voting for him. He proved last election, I mean, he got the most votes uh, he got more votes than any other sitting president in history. Like, there's a reason for that. He needs to, in my opinion, stop with some of the neocon rhetoric. He needs to show that he is actually a populist um, and go get those independent votes because they're waiting out there to be grabbed. And uh, to be frank, Kennedy is hemorrhaging them right now. And so all Trump has to do is take a little bit of a softer line on uh, Israel and Palestine, continue to rail against the establishment and continue to rail against the media and if once again, if all things are even, it don't matter how many times they prosecute him, he gonna, he's going to be running the country from a jail cell. So it's going to make it difficult for everybody else because he'll win. I mean, 98 out of 99 counties is not a coincidence. It's, it's not a fluke. Some, some might think it uh, appropriate for the president of the United States to be behind bars. But let me throw a, a wild card at you. I, I don't know if anyone else is thinking like this. But the more I see Tucker Carlson, the more I think he would be a terrific running mate for Donald Trump. Any any money going on that? You know what? From a strategic standpoint, right, I agree. The reason why is because for Tucker's faults, he actually has a pulse on what the people who push Donald Trump's movement and the true independent thought leaders of the world today are thinking and, and, and are expecting. Where Trump, like, like I said, one of the biggest faults of Trump last uh, uh, during his last administration was the fact that he didn't know who he could trust. Tucker Carlson spends a lot of time covering all of these people, all of these neocons and all of these neoliberals. Mm. If Tucker was there mm. to help handpick those uh, that would help Donald Trump in his administration, and also, more importantly, double to some degree as a press secretary, um, not officially, but just when it comes to helping Trump communicate yeah. the policies that would help his administration uh, and get get him the mandate that he needs to get them passed, I think that Tucker would be a slam dunk pick. I mean, you can make an argument that there is no more of a popular conservative in the world right now other than Tucker. 
And Tucker actually has a lot of pull with the independents yeah. as well. And it's some, somebody that, hell, I would probably even get behind and, and maybe hold my nose and vote for Trump. Because I'm like, yeah, Tucker got his problems, but you, may, you might get something done. Or he might pick people who might get something done, which is the most important thing. My thoughts entirely, uh, Nico. Thanks, as always, for joining us for that terrific review of, of America's political scene. Nico House, political commentator and founder of MCSC Network. It was very moving for me to talk with my commander, Ronnie Castros, this evening, and very touching and moving for me. Made me proud when he brought up my own uh, small services uh, to the liberation struggle in South Africa, coming from a man like him who went into the bush and took up arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing, ended them. Ronnie Castro's is one of history's great men and that he should remember my small services was a very touching indeed. Maybe I should talk more about my time with the underground in South Africa. You can find some of it in my speech to the Oxford Union, uh, which is much viewed on YouTube and on the internet in general. Me, I'm going to bed because it's later for me than it is for you. And I just know I'm going to dream about that unknown princess in Gaza. Thanks for being with me. Good night. <laughs>